Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for all the wonders that you do for us in Jesus. We give you thanks that your plans are not our plans, and that your projects are far greater than the ones that we can come up with. As uh, given in the example of the transfiguration today, even when we don't understand what's going on, you are working for our good. May that, may that reality bring us comfort and peace. All these things we ask in the name of Jesus. Okay, so we are going to be reviewing our Job section. We're doing uh, chapters 31 to 37 uh, today, just before we get to the response from God in chapter 38. That'll be the subject for next week. So this is your half sheet handout or our questions from Job. So can somebody summarize for me what Job's appeal is in chapter 30? Show me what I did wrong. Show me what I did wrong, right? Uh, he's asking, and it's sort. There's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing here, um, and it and it points us to Philippians chapter three with Paul, where Paul says, "If anyone were to be justified by works of the law, who would it be? It'd be me, right?" He said, "I'm Hebrew of Hebrews, right of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee." Right? And Job is doing a similar thing here. He said, if anyone is justified by doing good, they're justified by their moral behavior, it would be me, right? Now, of course, just like Paul, they're not saying that they're literally perfect. They're not making that claim. Um, but he sort of has this response because isn't this the claim that all of his friends have been making? That this is how suffering works. If you do the good stuff, you don't get any suffering. And so Job's appeal to God is like, if that was the way this worked, then I can't explain the situation. I would not be in suffering, but I am. Right? And so Job is, in a, in a weird way, he is appealing to the answer he's been given. Right? That God is in control of this completely. It's not dictated by my behavior, good or bad. Therefore, if it was, I wouldn't be in suffering. So I think it's similar in the understanding of Paul, where you can say, like, the words he's using are prideful words. And you can see, as we're going to see in the response that he gets, that that is, in fact, the way they're interpreted by his, um, was it Elihu? Yeah, um, and that's the way he interprets it. Um, but really what we're going to see is that there's a key part of Elihu's response that's lacking. He's actually, of all of the responses, his is the closest to being correct. A lot um, of this Elihu. seems forensic, that, you know, he's like, you know, I understand I'm on trial, but I don't know what the charges are. Yes. And in saying that, it's almost like he's putting the Lord on trial. Yes. Yes. And a part of him knows that what's the result of that going to be? Not, good. not great, right? His own humiliation. <laughs> but he also knows that that's really the only hope he has, is, right. is, is getting God involved in some way, or God being involved in some way. Because based on what he's claiming to in his responses to all of his friends is that God, it, this is his domain. He's in charge, right? 
Um, but Job is overreaching, which we'll see next week when we look at the response God gives him. Um, he is overreaching as far as what he thinks his role ought to be. So there is some pride there. Um, but I, I think your question will be answered when we answer question two. Um, and if it isn't, let me know. Okay. Um, so, and what's missing, what's the problem with Job's response here, of course, and he's sort of doing it semi-seriously. It assumes that humans are capable of seeing behind God's actions and designs. Right? Um, the assumption is if you just let me in, then I would be able to make sense of all this. And it discounts the very real possibility that the reason he's not letting you in is because your face is going to melt like the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right? <laughs> um, and so th those are th that possibility of this is his domain and he's keeping you out for a reason. And it's probably given all the stuff that he has revealed to us about himself. It's probably for our benefit that he's, he's not allowing us into that realm. Right? And if you think about it, going back to Genesis chapter one, that's the very thing that got us in trouble in the first place, is the desire to be in a realm which we as creatures are not equipped to be a part of. And it turns out we weren't equipped to know good and evil. Right? Um, that wasn't in the wiring of our programming when God made us. And so in, in a similar way here, Job wants some insight into the, the world of God's judgment and suffering and why he decides to do what he does. And he's not equipped to, to handle that. And that's part of Elihu's response, right? Because uh, what does Elihu focus a lot on in his response? I, 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 I. This is like a broken record. And I guess I never just focused on that part of the speeches before, but my goodness. Well, and the irony of that is why do you think he's so, he's so eye-centric? They give this long introduction that they describe some particular aspects of He's young. Life. He's young, right? And you can tell the way it's set up, like you probably, you maybe some of you might have even thought of a particular person where like they're just sitting off to the side of discussion and they're stewing and stewing and stewing. And they're, the only reason they're not saying is because they think, well, I'm young, so I'm not supposed to talk, but I've let all these old farts talk and they don't know what they're talking about. So let me educate them, right? So that's sort of the posture that comes in here. Now, that doesn't take away from the fact that he is more correct in this particular issue then Job's other three friends. He gets closer to the truth. Um, but um, this relates to question two here. What is he lacking in his condemnation of Job? Because according to what we talked about, is, is his condemnation of Job in a certain sense correct? It is. Yeah. It is, right? Because he's appealing over and over again to God's greatness, right? Um, which is sort of prepping Job and us for the full-blown answer in that line of thinking when God comes in the picture, right? But what is he lacking in his response? Okay, that's, we're on the right track with that, that nobody would be prosperous then, right? Um, Okay, so he, he's forgetting the part that God forgives. There's something even, even before that. Okay, 
Yeah, okay, so. I feel like he's twisted Job's words a little, because he said, you said this. And Job didn't exactly say that. It's like, he, he, he took the darkest spin on what Job said and made it worse. Okay, okay so the darkest spin on what Job said, because what he's lacking is precisely why he's doing it. He's lacking empathy with Job. He's not identifying himself oh, see, also I as a, a potential. Bit, I saw a little bit of empathy because he actually says Job's name when Job's buddies don't even do that. He does have he does have empathy in some of his speech, but his point carries no empathy because his point is like he's been, he accuses Job multiple times of, of arrogance and thinking he's better than he is, right? And I think part of the reason he's doing that is because he's putting a very harsh spin on everything Job says because he has no empathy. Because when people are in severe duress, do the things that they verbalize always reflect what they actually believe? They don't, right? Because what is happening when you're under severe duress, when you're under extreme suffering? There's confusion, there's pain, there's a desire to solve the issue of your suffering. And that leads to questions. And if you're a believer, where do those questions lead you? To God, right? And so when we read Job in the context of the whole book and his appeal in chapter 31, we're not really taking him totally seriously when he says, like, if, I, if, if things were done according to merit, I would be the best, right? Because what he's doing is he's voicing his frustration with not knowing why is this happening to me in my family. Right? And when Elihu responds to him, he has no, he, he has no, um, maybe empathy is not the right word, but he has, he has no ability to place himself in Job's situation. Compassion. compassion. That's it. Compassion. That's what I wrote. Right? The literal definition of compassion means what? Suffer with. Suffer alongside. Um, and so he has no ability to put himself in Job's situation, and therefore, what is he lacking? As you pointed out, he's lacking the grace side of God, which is the whole reason that we can approach him in the first place. Because the God, according to Elihu, does he sound very exciting and fun? No, what does he sound like? I will smoke thee. Right, he's an angry judge, right? And so... Um, so Elihu gets mostly the things mostly correct. He has the sort of impetuousness of youth, um, and I think that's intentionally displayed here. Um, but I think what also comes with the impetuousness of youth is lack of experience. And so I think my understanding of Elihu here, and I think the text bears this out, is that because he's never experienced any of these things, he lacks the ability to be to have compassion with Job. He's, he's not able to picture himself suffering alongside Job as a result of that. And so then he does put a really dark spin on all the things that Job said. Okay. Uh, Pete. Yeah, um, I, I know we touched on this uh, a, a few weeks ago, but um, I was wondering if any of the commentaries we've gone through explain why Elihu kind of has the root word of God in his name. Um, they do mention that. Um, so actually there's, uh, and I can look this up and, and bring it next week. Each one of the friends has a meaning in their name that is related to sort of the posture they take in reference to giving Job counsel. Um, but I haven't 
thrown out there for specific reasons. I don't have that. I don't have that written down, but I can look that up. Uh, people lack compassion and or But it also uh, it, it causes those same things when someone else they know is suffering. They'll be talking about themselves in their attempt to comfort them, and they'll inadvertently, um, some well sometimes intentionally, but sometimes inadvertently, end up keeping more burden upon the person that's suffering by by sort of blaming them for their own situation. Um, and usually, in order to do that, it means you've never really experienced the situation. So you can't picture yourself in it. Or you think that because of the way you've lived your life, that's why you're not in that situation. And that gives you a dangerous sort of areas. Uh, Dave, did you have your... I was just going to ask, is it, it uh, you know, in both the devil tempting Job through the advice, the advisors all fall short, and to some extent, mm -hmm. they're all, they all leave them with a totally, uh, you know, earthly forlorn, and basically, you know, he's just like, well, what are you going to do with this? And it's sort of like, I don't know if the devil's working with them and saying, okay, from, from bad advice to better advice, but it still isn't good enough. Well, there's somebody else working with them, too. Because um, Rust, I don't, I don't think he's stuck around for the class today, but uh, he sent an article after Bible class last time that was talking about how, guy wrote a nice article about how we're actually supposed to identify with both Job and his friends. And, and part of that understanding is that God is actually at work through Job's friends because he's preparing Job for the answer that he's about to receive from God. In other words, when you're really going through suffering, how often are you going to land on the correct answer to your questions at the beginning? Probably not, right? You're, you're going to go through iterations of an attempt to answer the question to solve to solve your consternation about your pain and the situation you're in. And once those run their course and you find, if this was the way it would work, I would not be suffering. But it's clearly not the way it works, right? So then Elihu comes in and talks a lot about God as his majesty, his power, his domain and dominion, which is true, but he misses the compassion part, uh, misses the approachability of God through that compassion. And he's not a great comfort to Job because he just condemns Job. Right? Because he took he takes everything Job says in the harshest possible light. Right? Um, now we're not told exactly why that is. We've made some, I think, some some good conjecture here based on what the text tells us. That because of his youth, and he's obviously an intelligent guy, that can those two things, youth and intelligence, are a dangerous combination when it comes to wisdom and compassion. Um, especially when they haven't had lot of like suffering experience in their youth so um, why is lacking compassion why is it important like why is it important to have compassion when you're speaking to someone so why is that a big deal that, that he lacks compassion lack of, lack of our community, yeah yeah a lack of a lack of community but even deeper than that, the thing that, that actually creates that community is what? The person that you're trying to help, they need to understand that you can relate to them. Yeah. So without right. the relatability, sometimes 
And so, like, the reason that we can identify with Job's friends is we're learning what not to do when one of our friends is suffering. Uh, one of the things that we learned early on in the seminary, well, we're taught it. It takes a while for us to learn it as pastors, because a lot of times pastors are a little too like Elihu, and they'd like to admit, um, is that in really, in situations where there's extreme suffering, you know, the, the, the loss of a child, um, where um, there are no words, right? And any words you come up with, they're going to ring hollow because they're not even really looking for that. What you ought to do in those situations is you sit down next to them in the rubble that was their life, you weep with them, and you just stop talking. Right? Um, so, you know, that that is sort of the, the lesson of Job's friends, because ultimately, who has the voice for those situations of suffering, according to the argument Job himself makes? God does, right? He's the solution, right? Um, okay, moving on to question three. What does Elihu get right? So we talked about this a little bit. Um, so I have a couple of particular references. So uh, in chapter 36, starting at verse 19, um, one of the things that he, he makes good insight in that's easy to miss is that God aims to teach us through our suffering. So what does he interpret Job is going to do here in, in this section? It, it may be kind of hard to see with the poetry there. Chapter 36, verses 19 to 23. I'll just read them for you. We'll see what we figure out. Uh, what does Elihu think Job is going to do here? So, will you cry for help to avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way or one who can say you have done wrong? So, Elihu is saying that don't like turn away from your suffering because God is trying to teach you, right? He's who is a greater teacher than he, right? Um, but he says here, do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. So one of the things that people do in, in despair is what do they think about? They think about killing themselves, right? And so Elihu is, is actually, and this is where his lack of compassion really shows itself. He's not saying don't kill yourself because you're worthy in the eyes of God and he values your life. He's saying, like, it's that's the weak, lame choice to make because God's trying to teach you and you're running away from his teaching. Um, but he does give insight in there that does God teach through suffering? Yes, he does, right? And sometimes, as we're learning in Job, specifically for he, he reserves the right as the king of the universe, to test you in trials of faith, to test your faith in him, right? He takes away all the potential things that you could be putting your hope and your, and your security in to see whether or not you're putting it in him, right? And when you're the God of the universe, as we learned today, right? He's calling the shots, right? He's the one who, who gets to make those decisions, right? Um, the second insight um, is your good deeds or moral behavior has consequences for your neighbor, but they cannot compel God. Either way, right? Uh, so this is in chapter 35, verses 6 to 8. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? 
And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. Right? So in other words, he's agreeing with Job in that, in a certain sense, that like, your good or bad behavior really contributes nothing to God. Right? It's not like by doing good, you can compel him to do something in return. Right? Um, and this would be a significant departure from a lot of the religions that would be surrounding the people of God in the ancient world. That was the primary means of interaction with God was the gods were angry and wrathful against you, and you had to appease their wrath by doing certain things, sacrifices or uh, good deeds, like sacrifice of virtue or a sacrifice of blood or whatever it is. Uh, and here he's saying, like, that, like, he doesn't need anything. Like, part of the definition of being God is he needs nothing from you. Now, he may want something from you, but what you do does not give him anything or doesn't convince him to do this or that. Um, now, in God's grace, that's not entirely true. He allows us to um, elicit him for action and for uh, there are times in the Old Testament where Moses recall it says in the scriptures that when Moses speaks to God, he asks him to remember the promises, the mercies that he has on his people. Right? Um, but again, Elihu doesn't really get that part of God in his answer. And, and he, yeah. he's almost, you know how, how the other three were trying to fix a specific transgression on the reason for the suffering? No. Um, at least Elihu isn't doing that but he is sort of uh, implying that God's trying to teach you something through your suffering. And well, th that's kind of arrogant because that's not what God's doing. And he's assuming he knows what God's doing. Right. God's trying to teach Satan something here. Right. And, you know, Job is just, you know, the pawn. But Job is also learning something here. Well, yeah, he, he, he is. And, um, He's learning, he's learning he can endure for his sovereign. And I guess he didn't know that before because he was never tested like that before. But God knew the end of this game yeah. because God yeah. knows everything. You know, it's not like he was testing a bridge to see whether or not the bridge would hold. He knew the bridge would hold, barely, but, but it helped. So God knew this. Job doesn't know this. The friends don't know this. Right. And probably Satan doesn't know this till the end of the story. Well, Satan thinks the bridge is going to fall. Right? That was his original contention. Yeah. So, I mean, God is testing the bridge, but he he knows he knows it's going to stand. Right. And that's not the only outcome of the test either. But that not only is the bridge going to stand, but it's going to be reinforced right. because Job learns. He does learn something here, other than that he can endure. He learns really like he. He had a decent grasp of his place in relationship with God at the beginning of this because he can endure the people who are trying to convince him that he's in a different place, that he has some agency over whether or not he suffers. And he says, no, that's the domain of God. We can't do that. But he's at a loss for if why? that's the domain of God, then why is this happening? Why? And at the end, you know, as we're going to see next week, 
he gets a he gets a in a sense a fuller answer um, to where he stands and how he relates to God. Um, so yeah, and, and I think the for us too being able to identify with the friends and with Job in the situation is why the book of Job itself is almost a testing for us. Is because it really does bring up the very difficult questions about suffering, because we're saying that like, God could cause you to suffer even if you are a, a blameless man. Where's the justice in that, right? And so then we get into it automatically brings us into this idea of well, what gives you the idea that your definition of justice has anything to do with what God thinks is just? And that's a difficult. That's a difficult question because we'd like to think we know. Yeah. yeah. It looks like it's it's a problem of scale on some sense because their concept of justice seems very narrow. Yeah. I mean, he says uh, 34 11, for according to the work of a man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will take what he called him. And, you know, it's interesting because if you look at other scriptures like throughout. Book of, of first and second kings, and it, you know, there's a lot of this. Okay, well, these these kings fell into wickedness, and the consequence was, you know, the people fell away, they stopped believing, and then he gave them into the hands of the enemy. There's very much a, a works righteousness on it, but at, at a very large scale, right? A, a generation, like 20, 30 years. And here it's like they're trying to take that justice and say, oh, well, God has to make this happen, you know. I mean, it, it must be a, a, an ideology. That says it, it's like today you have your name and claim it, right? That says your your faith if your faith isn't good enough, then you're not going to be healed from your disease, right? Like it has to be immediate. Well, that's that's not true. And and likewise, if you're you know really on the Pharisaical side, if you know you think every good thing that happens is because you earned it, or every bad thing, you know that's it's a scale problem, right? But maybe overall, it's transactional. Yeah, very transactional. Yeah, yeah. In a certain sense, it is a scale problem with regards to like our ability to see the scale of what like all of these words we're using actually mean, right? Because all of our ideas are borrowed ideas reflected from our creator, and they're in they're smaller than what he has concepts of. And so even in the, the verse you referenced, right? He's he's uh, the very next one he says, of a truth, God would not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Well, whose justice is he talking about? But he thinks he's talking about God's justice, but he's trying to apply his own definition to it, which is why he's trying to teach Job. Um, when it, really, if he if he really believes that God's justice is this great big thing, what should he be saying to Job? He shouldn't be telling, trying to tell him specifics about how God's justice works. He should be saying that's God's thing, and you need to rely on Him because it's beyond our ability. To parse and make sense of. Now there are some specific things in the scriptures where we know, like this is unjust and this is just. But um, I went over this yesterday in men's Bible study. I think sometimes what's confused here, we have a teaching called two kinds of righteousness, and um, that's the passive righteousness, which is in the world between us and God, sort of the cosmic righteousness. And in that realm, do we have any righteousness? No. Can we generate any righteousness within ourselves? No. Where does all the righteousness come in that realm? 
from God, specifically given to us through Jesus, right? And that's why the scriptures specifically say that we are robed in the righteousness of Christ, right? That's one of the reasons that, that people who are doing the service up front sometimes wear the white robes, right? It's a symbol of a covering of Christ's righteousness, right? Um, and so uh, in, the, in the active realm, the horizontal realm, you might say, we have an active righteousness because that primarily deals with our relationship with one another. And in that realm, you do have a scale, right? You do have a grade here where uh, is a lie the same, is treated? Is it treated as the same degree as murder? No, right? In, in the civic realm, they have very different penalties, and they should, right? Because as Elihu points out, your works of, of immorality or morality, who benefits from those or, or is hurt by them? Your neighbors, not God, other people, right? Um, and in the realm of, of your relationship with God, is there any difference between lying and murder? No. What is the equal consequence of both? Death and separation from God, right? And so I think at times when we're talking about our own sense of justice, we confuse which realm we're in, right? Um, we confuse that we're talking about the active righteousness of the world and the justice that, that he's given us through, through means, through agents that we can make sense of. And then we try to apply that to the cosmic realm. And that's where we get way out of our out of our league. Right. Yeah, Jim. All you have to do is look at Jesus' life itself. Peter, we have no understanding of what true justice is at the positive level. Right, yeah, right. And so the, the big turn in Luke, the book of Luke, right, today in, in chapter nine. I encourage you to go back and look at chapter nine at the beginning. The disciples have clarity, conviction, and joy. And at the end, they're terrified, confused, and silent. Because what was revealed to them was the truth of the God of God's justice and mercy in Jesus. And it was not at all what they thought, right? And I always like the image of the transfiguration where Peter's trying to hold on to Moses and Elijah. Because what do Moses and Elijah represent? The law and the prophets, right? The old setup that Jesus has come to completely replace. And he's trying to keep them there. And Jesus is like, you don't need them anymore. I'm here. And then, of course, the Father reinforces that. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is really, uh, that's one of the, the big lessons in the book of Job for us as readers is this understanding that, like, when we ask some of our questions in distress, we're getting into a realm that is far beyond our ability to make any sense of. And it's dangerous, then, to apply what we know to that space. Right? Because then we end up... What, what often happens to God in that setup? He becomes to us unjust. He becomes to us the perpetrator of the suffering and the injustice. Right? So, and if you think about our society's definitions of those things, that's why people are always lamenting and when they read the Old Testament, they're like, how could God do such things? He seems evil. Well, according to whom? All right, is the question that should be asked. Yeah, Jim. So, I mean, I think it's a great teaching tool when we're in that space, how do you approach God with Yeah. So how do we approach God with our suffering? So, so far, what we learned at Job, that's a good question. How do we approach God in our suffering? What's the right way to do that? I'm not saying what's the way you're going to, or I'm going to do, but what's the right way? First Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, be thankful in all circumstances. Okay. 
tell me how to do that, and I will. <laughs> Get ranked in all circumstances. That doesn't qualify. That statement's not qualified by any exceptions, right? So. Yeah, right. Because it, you know, when you're going through something really hard, that's the last thing you want to do. You know, so I mean, I mean, I pray for that all the time. Like, God, help me to be, you know, not to be gone, not to stand it, but to be accepted, you know, whatever it is. Right. And it's your will for me because, you know, sure is my will for me. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Sure is it my will. Right. And and so if you could sum it up in a sentence, it would be something like, um, Lord, help me to trust you. Because whatever the situation is that I'm in that's causing the suffering, by definition, it's beyond my ability to understand, not necessarily like the the, the why the uh, the hows and the happenings of your suffering, but why it's it even allowed to have happened to you or to the person that you're feeling that whatever it is right? um, and that that really is what we're building towards here at Job. Um, I hope you got a chance to watch the little summary video. The Bible Project has those videos for like every book of the Bible. They're very helpful. They do occasionally say some odd things uh, but for the most part it's pretty sound with biblical scholarship. So I hope that was helpful. It kind of gives you a nice visual overview of the book as well. Um, but uh, we're going to be getting into sort of the climax of Job next week. Um, so we're going to read 38 through the end of Job. So that'll be the assignment for next week. And this is when, so during during Elihu's response to Job, there's a storm that is approaching where they're at. And in chapter 38, the storm is arriving and the storm is, is God. Right? And he's going to speak. So just one quick thing. That question I had earlier, I did find that Aliphaz means God is my gold and Elihu means he is my God. I guess the question is, is there a reason why these characters have these names in this circumstance? Right. Well, that was what I told you. I don't know. Okay. I don't know right. offhand. Right. I have to look that up. I'm sure there is. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, but, yeah. Okay. Any final questions on that section of Job or just anything in Job before we move on to the finishing the work? Okay. All right. Well, good questions. Good discussion. Uh, now, uh, get your other hand out. I'm going to teach you some Hebrew today. I know you're so excited. <laughs> um, and if you have a catechism, open up your catechism to page 279. 279. And looking at your hand out there, let's read the conclusion together. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Forever and ever. Amen. What does this mean? This means that I should be certain that these petitions are pleasing to our Father in heaven and are heard by him. For he himself has commanded us to pray in this way and has promised to hear us. Amen. Amen means yes, yes, it shall be so. All right. So, um, Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, starting at verse 11. Yes. I just, I've, I've said the Lord's Prayer in front of people that don't even know that part of it. it we'll get, we'll get, we'll get to that. Because <laughs> you also might have read it in the Gospels and said, 
there's that's not on the end. Yeah. Where where did that come from? So we'll we'll talk. Um, somebody have the first chronicles. Yeah. Chronicles. First chronicles. Yeah. Go ahead. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. All right. So, how does that compare to our conclusion of the Lord's Prayer? Similar expression. What's what is the sort of main thrust of that expression? What are we doing? Glorifying God. Glorifying God. Right. So, where is this sort of? This is like a. There were so the reason that we have it included at the end of our Lord's Prayer is there were certain manuscripts of the scriptures that did include this, and then there are certain ones that don't. Um, and in case you didn't know, um, not to, we're not going to get too much into this because it would be a whole Bible study unto itself. But the way the book that is made that you have that's called the Bible is there a bunch of individual little pieces of scroll of papyrus and all these different manuscripts. Um, if you have if you've ever looked at a Greek New Testament or a Hebrew Old Testament, one of the things you'll see is there's this big, long chunk of a bunch of unintelligible markings at the bottom. And those are listing, so you might see a little letter in the text itself that references a letter at the bottom, and it's telling you which manuscripts use that particular translation, and there may be a few that you use different ones. And so the way they decide which one goes in is they base it on the completeness of the manuscripts, the age of the manuscripts, and the number of manuscripts that include them. Because all of this was very meticulously copied. Um, so, and it and we we just they've decided in the ESV translation uh, that more of the more of the manuscripts support that this is not like an official part of the Lord's Prayer given by Jesus. It's not. Yeah, but notice what is like, it's really not that big of a deal because notice what the purpose of this ending is. It's not something that is actually given by Jesus. It doesn't really even have the tone of something given by Jesus, right? It's not an instruction on how to pray. It's a what? It's a conclusion to a prayer that we would give and praise to God, right? And so like, does... But for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever is a statement of the glory of God. He knows that that's not like a, a request or an intercession or something like that, that he is uh, needing to give his disciples when they ask and teach us how to pray. Um, and so the, this comparison here in Chronicles is to illustrate, like, even though that's not, that's not like in that particular part of the scriptures, you're not saying anything unfaithful or true in, in doing that. So there's no reason to stop saying it. If you do this, if you say the Our Father with Catholics, though, they're all going to drop out. You're going to be talking just yourself. Yeah. Just, so, just so you know. But they do say it. They do. They yeah. say it after a short interlude of... Or, or um, different. Sometimes different. After, after the previous petition, they insert a, a prayer, deliver yeah. us, Lord, from every evil and gracious or peace in our day, in your yeah. mercy. Keep us free from sin and protect us from all anxiety as we wait for the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. 
and then for the kingdom, the power right. of glory. Right. Yeah. So it's it's really um, like our our understanding of it at this point is it's it's a good thing to say. It's become the thing that we say. It's identified with it, and that itself has some authority in our minds. So uh, we believe that the the heritage that we've inherited through the church is not without merit. Uh, and so if it's something that is in tandem with scripture, it's a good practice and it's become the practice of the people. There's no reason you should, you should change it. So that's kind of where this stands as far as uh, answering the question of like, some people don't say it, they say it in different places or like I read Matthew and it doesn't have that in there. Why are we saying yeah, probably hundred. Yeah. Well, let's look at it. It is New I always have trouble flipping pages on the Bible when I'm going back between a regular Bible and study Bible. You turn on your pages and study Bible. So it's Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 and following. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, you have, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you will not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then it goes on to a section for fasting. So I think what you're remembering is for a while there were there were versions of the English translation that included the free language, um, and it has since been taken out because they they bracketed it. Yeah, so it was like set aside as like you know in the category it was always in the category of we're not sure if this was an editor adding it in a trans later translation or it somehow accidentally got put in as part of it because sometimes you might you might say that somebody wrote it as like a marginal note for themselves and somebody interpreted that as like there or whatever. But, um, so we don't know exactly, at least I don't know. I can look up the history of that, but I don't think it's known exactly how that went in there. But, yeah, Dave. I get, I get what you think of it. I never thought of it that way. It's like an acknowledgement of the, Right. 
For what? Well, if that's what you're interpreting, that's not what I meant. But like the at this point, there is no right or wrong. Is what I'm saying. Like it's not a. We're not saying that by having that in, that this is part of what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter six. But it's it doesn't matter if it's in or not because it's a true confession, right? And it's not really adding anything to the prayer. It, it's it's yeah. uh, there's a lot of instances where doxologies happen just in in church practice. You know, we're not a psalm singing church, unfortunately. But if we were, mm -hmm. there might be you know a glory be at the end of every one of that. Yeah. That doesn't appear right there in scripture, right. but it's just sort of church practice. And Paul tags doxologies on the end of lots of. Right, right. So this is, um, I think I've mentioned the term adi offering here before. Yeah. This is this is an example of that, where, um, you know, if we were to say and make the claim that this is the only way to correctly do the Lord's Prayer, to include this, that would be incorrect, because we're claiming an authority to this we don't have. Right? But it would be just as wrong for someone to say, if you do that, it's no longer a valid Lord's Prayer, because there's nothing in it that does that. Um, and so it's a, it becomes the realm of personal preference in a certain sense. But then when you add the heritage of the church in there, then it's really like, would it be like if I decided I felt personally, I, for some reason I read it this time and I felt, you know what, I really don't like having that in there because it confuses people or whatever reason I would come up with. And then the next Sunday when we do the Lord's Prayer, I just move on in the middle of that part. You guys are all like, mm -hmm. <laughs> would that have been a good thing for me to do? No, right? Because there's there is weight and authority behind what the the church guided by the Holy Spirit has done for centuries. Right now, that doesn't that doesn't like sanitize immoral things. So you can't use that to be like, well, the church used to do this, and and so we should still do it. Well, if it was wrong then, it's wrong now. But if it falls into this category of adiaphora, then it becomes a, a tradition and a heritage which you inherit, and then in fact. What does it do? It, it binds you to those people, right? Um, so it's really a potato potato thing. Um, it's our heritage to say it. And so in our context, it's good to do so. Um, there really is no reason to not do it, um, that sort of thing. It would, it would be sort of like if we were a, um, a full-on traditional church and a, a group of our congregation wanted to introduce some contemporary elements to like music for example, if that were to cause like a big schism, then it shouldn't be done. If the congregation says, oh, I mean, the words are great. It's it's speaking the same message. It's focused on Christ. Let's do it. That's fine. Yeah. I think it's important to realize what, what this is. And as Janine says, it's a doxology. Any doxology is nothing more than a praise to God. Why would it not be acceptable? Praise God after any prayer. Um, you know, whether it be you know, praise, uh, praise God from me. Thank you. I just, I just blank. Thank you. Um, um, or as you were saying, the glory be. You know, 
all a doxology is is a praise to God. And what better time to praise God than during your prayer time? <laughs> well, and, and it, I mean, so really, what, and we'll get this next question here kind of gets into this, is this section of the Lord's Prayer, at any time you would do this in a prayer, is, is it actually, basically, it's just an extended amen, is what it is, right? Um, because, uh, well, let's, let's look at the next question. What does it mean to end our prayers with amen? Huh? Truly, truly, so be it. This right. is so. This is so, right? And what is that an expression of? Faith of, faith of what in what in the words in God's word in in what like in what particular thing are you expressing faith and when you say amen at the end of the prayer that it um, that it will be done you're yeah. expressing God's sovereignty right yeah. make it happen I trust that's it louder faith that God heard your prayer right because that, like, that's something I think we take for granted in our prayers, but, like, it's a pretty radical thing. Like, the God of the universe has promised to listen to you, right? And so when you're saying amen, you're expressing your faith in him, in particular, that he heard my prayers and that he's going to carry them out according to his good and gracious will, right? And to further your point about the doxology as being extended amen, amen is not the end of the Lord's Prayer in Scripture either. That's right. That's true. That's something, you know. Humans have sort of tacked on, and that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. point. That's a great point. Yeah. All right. Uh, I, and I'm just for your own enjoyment on the handout, I, I wrote Amen in Hebrew for you there. That's what it looks like for Hebrew. Um, that's where it comes from. It's a Hebrew word. Uh, Amen is the way it would be pronounced. You think nobody really knows for sure um, how ancient Hebrew was pronounced because they didn't do so. Those little markings at the bottom are called vowel markings. And in the oldest forms of Hebrew, there are no vowel markings. It's just consonants. So we don't, like, so Yahweh, for example, we're not 100% sure that's the exact way you pronounce Yahweh because the early writings of it had no vowel markings. It's a system developed later. Um, but, um, so that's what it looks like in Hebrew. Uh, and then let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians. Somebody look up 1 Corinthians 1, 19 to 20. Or second, yeah, sorry, second. Thank you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 19 to 20. Someone read that for us. Don't all jump at once. All right, Cooper, got it. Um, and then Luke 23, 42 to 43. Bob, you got it? Okay. So Cooper, read your source. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All right. So our amen is an expression of the fulfillment in Jesus, right? Um, because that's when this change occurs, right? You couldn't pray this way in the Old Testament. It occurs with Jesus, right? And so amen is our expression that all of the promises of God have found their amen in Christ, their, their yes, their accomplishment. All right, and then uh, Bob, Luke 23. 22, 42. 42 and 43. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Is that chapter 23? 
Okay. I'm not sure why I glued that there. You know what, Pastor? Um, yeah. In the ESV, it starts off truly. I say to you today, we would be sure that is it because of the truly? Yeah. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> that might be. <laughs> um, it could be. It could be. Maybe it'll come to me later. Why? Um, but well, either way, the Second Corinthians one passage epitomizes why we have that practice, why we add those to the end of our prayers, right? And and I encourage you to like. I'm glad that either you remembered that today or you learned that today, because when you do pray, the words you say have meaning, and that's the meaning of that word. That's what you're expressing when you say Amen. Is the belief and faith that all of God's promises have been accomplished in Christ, and including the promise to hear your prayer and act on it according to his good and gracious will, which is a great comfort to us. Um, so that is the Lord's Prayer um, in the Catechism there. Uh, and then I just wanted to open it up for the last few minutes here. We've got about seven minutes. Um, any questions about the Lord's Prayer or just prayer in general? They don't even necessarily have to do with what we talked about today. Because we're kind of ending our section on this. We're going to be moving on um, to a new one here soon. Wouldn't I know it's key. <laughs> it's going to be quieter when you're done. <laughs> you know, I would just like to know your personal take on using debts or trespasses towards prayer. Oh, ah. Ooh, why yeah, should we use debts or trespasses? Why are we using which one should we use in the Lord's Prayer? Um, again, I think that's an audio for a thing because, uh, in the especially in the context of the prayer, people know what it means. Um, so I would go with whatever the location you're in uses. So like, well, since you asked the question, I'll use it. If you get called to a church in rural Idaho, for example, which I'm sure you would love, um, they, if they say debts and debtors, don't change it to trespass. Just a little bit of advice right there. I should not be the stumbling block to Yes, especially in issues of adiaphora. You can let the gospel be the stumbling block when it needs to be. So... Yeah, Jim. You're thinking of literally talking about finances and not money. No. <laughs> That's often, so there's often a financial expression to the concept of justice when it comes to sin. So, like you have the parable of the, the servant who uh, owes the master an unbelievable debt he can't hope to repay. Right? And of course, it's not literally talking about like we owe God millions and millions and millions of dollars. It okay. means, you know, our debt to sin is so. Massive that we can't. Okay, if I just use the word sin. Yeah, yeah. Like so, that's actually a good question. So Jim asks, "Is it okay if he uses the word sin if he wants to?" Yes, that's completely fine. Um, I have public ministry obligations that I have to consider when I want to do certain things in my capacity in the office of the pastor um, that an individual Christian does not. So I could, in my own speech of the Lord's Prayer at home, I could do the same thing. No problem. That's fine. Yeah, that's totally fine. Yeah, that's fine. So what is the Greek word that is used? I don't know offhand. 
It's probably um, a karyos or some form of that, so um, which is usually like a missing of a mark, but I don't know if that's in this one. So that's even happy. more uh, with Macarius, less of your happy, you mean uh, Amartya? That, yes. Yeah. Okay. I think so too. Which is funny because they mean like the opposite. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that more, kind of, that seems more like sin might be a better yeah, so it's I don't know. I don't the, the short answer to your question is I don't know exactly where that I can look it up though, but you know. Well, and then Luke, they use somebody else in the word sin. Yeah, well, of itself. well <laughs> missing the mark is is the the English idiom translation of a single word. Uh, and, and Tim, also, you can't look at Greek and English as a one to one. So uh, I'll, I'll give you the word for, for baptism. It's baptizo. It can mean wash, purify, dip, immerse, sprinkle. Okay, now you know why there's so many divisions about baptism amongst the denominations. <laughs> That's a good question, though. I don't, I don't, sorry, I don't know offhand about the particular Greek I'm going to have to start reading the Greek New Testament. <laughs> a couple of those questions, and then I can just look at it for you. Um, yeah, I would figure yeah. it just have a direct translation in the English, right. so many different translations of Right. So a good example, another good example of that is when it says like um, that uh, the, the shepherds were sore afraid of the King James Version. Right. Um, in Greek, that's just the, the same word has been repeated twice to emphasize that it's not. They weren't just like a little scared. They were like pooping. <laughs> and so like if you want to get as extreme as the greek represents sometimes you can say some funny stuff in english and like one of my greek professors said that one time about the, the guards who were guarding jesus too when the angels appeared and it says like they were shaken with fear he said a more accurate english translation would be they filled their pants with fear like that it just <laughs> just lose all control of your body in terror kind of um so but which is which should comfort you. That's one of the reasons that in order to become a pastor in our synod, you have to study Greek and the, the, the original languages um, and be able to interact with that text. I'm actually going to be proctoring the exam for somebody <laughs> in those soon. So, so pray for Pete that he passes. The exam. Um, <laughs> any other questions about, about that, about prayer in general? All right, so I'm going to give you the option to choose which section of the catechism of the principal parts that we're going to go over next. So we could go means of grace sacraments route first, and then confession and the office of the keys, and the office of the keys, like the pastoral office, apostolic succession, all those sorts of questions. Um, so those are our two remaining chunks. So do you want to do the means of grace sacraments first, and then confession, or confession, office of the keys, and then means of grace and sacraments? The next one in the catechism is sacrament of holy baptism. Be kind of easy to just choose one. Well, I figured I'd give you the choice first. Nobody. I like the means of grace. Means of grace. Yeah. Means of grace next. Okay. So we'll do we'll do means of grace next. So next week we'll be looking at the category that we call means of grace, and then we'll get specifically into the sacraments of baptism. Um, okay, uh, and then just to reiterate the Job reading, we're going to finish the book of Job. So next week, be thinking of the next book of the Bible you'd like to read. 
So I'll take suggestions for that. Um, so we're going to finish Job this week. So I think it's just 38 to 42. Um, so it's a shorter one. So lucky you. Um, and this is sort of the big culmination. God is coming and he's going to talk to Job. Uh, and we're going to see what his answer is. Um, so uh, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. And don't say anything other than trespasses. <laughs> let's go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Have a good week, everybody.